Hi guys, it's Andy McDonald, physio and strength and conditioning coach, and welcome to the Informed Performance Podcast. On today's show, I have James Moore providing a masterclass on hamstring injuries for us following his HDPN webinar last week on the topic. James is the Clinical Director of Sports and Exercise Medicine at the Centre for Health and Human Performance on London's Harley Street. Notably, James was awarded the Deputy Chef to Mission of Performance Services for Team GB at the Rio 2016 Olympic Games. And he has previously held titles such as Head of Performance for Team GB and was the manager for the Intensive Rehabilitation Unit for the BOA, as well as working extensively in track and field, rugby, cricket and other sports globally. So as you'll discover listening in a second, he's got an absolute wealth of knowledge and experience to share. This episode of the Informed Performance podcast has been sponsored by Vold Performance, makers of Forstex, the world's fastest, easiest and most powerful dual force plate system. Forstex can help you to analyse neuromuscular strength, performance and imbalances with your athletes. Through a simple setup and intuitive software, Forstex automatically detects over 15 common force plate tests and analyses them with a single click, helping you to get quick and accurate insights on your athletes. To learn more about Forstex, visit our sponsor, vardperformance.com. But without further ado, let's get into today's episode between myself and James Moore. Hi guys, it's a real privilege of mine to welcome James Moore to today's show. James has been a distant mentor of mine, and for those of you that know him, you'll definitely appreciate that sitting in my seat today chatting to James about hamstrings is a little bit like reaching the final boss or level of a video game, but he has told me that he'll go easy on me. So having had the benefit of knowing James and hearing him speak before, I would strongly advise that you have a pen and paper ready to make notes, um, as I've no doubt this will be a very rich and expert information episode. So James, thanks for coming on the show, mate. Thanks, Andy. It's uh, an honour and a privilege to speak here today. Um, before we talk hamstrings, can you provide the listeners that may be discovering you now for the first time, just with a little bit of background information on yourself? Yeah, sure. Um, so physio by trade, graduated about 24 years ago uh, and have done various advanced studies. So first uh, postgrad was in advanced manual therapy, but specialised in neurophysiology of pain. Second postgrad was in engineering. Um, so it was applied biomechanics, really, but we were only taught by engineers and mathematicians, so no clinical background added to that. And then also did a lot of work within strength and conditioning about 20 odd years ago and exercise physiology. So I come at things from quite a, a varied background um, clinically. I've worked in athletics for eight years. Um, I've worked across four Olympic cycles from Beijing all the way through, well, sorry, from Athens all the way through to Tokyo pretty much or um, just before. And then I've also worked for England Rugby and Saracens as well as professional cricket and consulted for a number of the um, the large, well, a number of the Premier League clubs within and championship clubs within the UK. So quite a varied sort of um, clinical background to go with my academic background as well. And just to give a little bit more context into uh, your interest in hamstrings, what kind of sparked that um, expertise for you? Um, so I always love speed power sports and contact sports and having worked in athletics since 2004. Uh, obviously hamstrings is a key component and was our most frequent injury at the time when we did all of our stats and analysis uh, and again it just um, sparked as a 
a passion, wanting to understand not only how do we reduce the risk of the injury, but also the paradox was actually how do we get people to perform at the top end level. And we always used to say it's really easy to stop an injury. And particularly in your hamstrings, you just don't train very hard. But the problem with that is in athletics, you're not going to win any medals. So the dichotomy or the polarised approach of pushing somebody to their limit to reach top end speed whilst reducing their risk of injury became just a, a, something that naturally appealed to my my mind, my mindset. And we're going to talk about HDPN at the end and we'll, we'll talk about the kind of courses, webinars and um, educational content that you're putting out there. Um, but just for the listeners' benefit, the, the context or the con- the episode today is following on a course that James ran last week on hamstrings. Um, for any of the listeners that didn't catch that course or webinar that you ran, could you give a bit of a synopsis of what it was called and what it was about and uh, kind of how it fits into your educational system, at least for hamstrings? Yeah, so... <clears throat> All of our webinars that we're going to run, and there's a number of different systems we've got for education on on HTPN or the Health Development and Performance Network, as Andy's mentioned. Um, all of the webinars are designed around inspiring different ways of thinking or inspiring different thought processes and maybe challenging or getting you slightly out of your comfort zone or just giving you a stimulus to go off and read a little bit more. So the webinar that I ran last week was on hamstring injuries, why are we wrestling with pigs? Putting the evidence into context was the title. Now, pig wrestling came from George Bernard Shaw's quote of, I learned long ago never to wrestle a pig. You get dirty, and besides, the pig likes it, which is basically a play on words that sometimes we wrestle with information and context of information that may not necessarily be valid in the way in which we want to use it for clinical practice and or scientific rigor. And there's a lot of information out there on hamstrings. And we've got in excess of 650 articles on hamstrings itself. And a lot of it is information and it's discerning and interpreting the right information and putting that into the appropriate context for the athlete, the sport, the situation at hand, because all all evidence is only relevant towards the experience of the clinician and the um, environment in which you're you're applying it to either the individual or the sport or the industry by which you're applying it. So that was the nature of the talk to try and stimulate people to think differently and look at the evidence and put it into context around hamstrings. And, and today what we'll do is we'll kind of, or I'll cherry pick some of the questions or topics that have come out of that presentation. Um, and it'll be a bit of a, it'll be a revisit for people that have heard the webinar, but it'll also be kind of a, an intro into some of the, the topics and the content itself for people that are new listeners or um, didn't watch the webinar with James last week. So let's start with the what before the how and start by understanding the problem first and foremost. So hamstring injuries are common, but certainly complex despite our perhaps um, sort of common familiarity and exposure to them in in the field. Can you summarise, big question, but can you summarise the state of hamstring injury classification models as they are now? Yeah, I'll try to. Um, So I think the first point is, is that we've got to look at muscle injury classifications first and then apply that to hamstrings and or other areas because I think there are different interpretations depending on the muscle group you're looking at. So um, historically, hamstrings were regarded as a heterogeneous group. So all injuries were lumped into the same thing. 
whether regardless of the muscle, regardless of location, regardless of size, regardless of mechanism of injury. What's then evolved um, over time for the history, and I'm a bit of a, a history buff. I studied history at um, A-levels or high school level, if you want to look at that. So I get fascinated by that. And there's a the original classification system that's widely used was done by Takabayashi, um, which basically looked at a three-tiered model of grade one, grade two, grade three injuries. However, we've then evolved and then we've evolved into um, the, Mu- the Munich classification, which comes out of obviously out of Germany, which has been widely used, particularly within the UEFA sort of classifications within football. We've got the British Athletics or the BAMIC classification system, and then Barcelona Football Club have come up with their own classification system. The problem is, is that a lot of this is just the comment on anatomy and or leads people to think about a diagnosis. So if we take the BAMIC, which is the most commonly used or British Athletics muscle injury classification system in the UK, um, they would describe the grade as in zero, one, two, three, or four, um, as in the extent of the injury and size of the injury. And they would describe the location A, B, or C. So away from the tendon, within the muscle belly or into the tendon, for example. Now, the problem with that is, is that a grade 2C proximal biceps femoris MT junction injury into the tendon is different than a grade 2C distal biceps femoris tendon injury. So by classifying it that way, we are almost not assuming, but we're leaning people to think that the injuries are similar when they're not. On top of that, and we can go into the anatomy of that a bit later on, on top of that, the mechanism of injury is pretty critical. There are typical mechanisms of injury. There are atypical mechanisms of injury. And correlating or amalgamating that within pattern recognition is the critical component for us. So classification is extremely valid. It's warranted. It's needed in order to understand what we're dealing with from a diagnostic anatomical point of view. The area where I think we need to elaborate on is around including the mechanism of injury, which the Barcelona and the Munich classification system do, but their grading system has some, well, certainly the Munich one, their grading system doesn't necessarily have prognostic value, which is where we'd want to look at things in a bit more detail. But it's understanding that mechanism and then understanding the functionality of the individual because an injury to one area, to let's say proximal biceps femoris tendon MT junction in one athlete, will not have the same functional limitations or implications as it does to another athlete that has a very similar, if not in inverted commas, the same injury. So I think what it does is it tends to lend you towards giving it a title and a name, and that's what we have and that's what we deal with, and then this is the process we do for grade two Cs, et cetera, for protocol versus actually that's the title and that's the starting block now where's all the other context that fits into that information with the classification system itself so hopefully that answers it yeah there's um there's no doubt a lot of the listeners and clinicians are still uh, gravitating towards the more common um takabayashi three-tier grading system and i'm sure that often depends on the setting or context that you work in and you know if you work in the uk you're going to be far more familiar probably with the BAMIC than you would be say if you were stateside but how do you personally articulate the classification or describe a hamstring injury so 
I mean, what I mean by that is how do you combine the options and then communicate detailing an injury if you're writing the report or, or the diagnosis? Sure. No, great question. So <clears throat> I think first and foremost, um, we wouldn't, we would always work as an MDT over here. And you're right, different countries. Um, and this has been injuries the world over. So whether we look at hip and groins, whether we look at hamstrings, you know, there was the Doha agreement on hip and groins in 2009, I think it was that looked at, you know, how do we get the right terminology and nomenclature for defining hip and groin injuries? Well, I think we've probably got to move to that state with hamstring injuries itself. Um, and therefore have uniform uniformity across the board. Because certainly, as I mentioned in the talk, when I look at hamstring injuries that are commented on in the UEFA Champions League versus the hamstring injuries we see um, or some of the data we've seen from Australian rules football, it would appear, and this is an interpretation, it would appear that the majority, well, we know that 70% of hamstring injuries in Champions League football are grade zero to grade one, whereas hamstring, the majority of the hamstring injuries in um, another sport might be grade two, whether that's Aussie rules or another sport. And so therefore, we're not comparing um, like for like within our protocols and our diagnosis. But if I go back to the diagnostic question, it's always done as a team. So it's good radiology and imaging, whether that be MRI or ultrasound. And the consensus statement that we worked on in January this year through University College London and the Institute of Sport and Exercise Health focused around the fact that MRI is probably the gold standard and ideally MRI comparing limb with limb so both the injured limb with the non-injured limb is probably an ideal standard to really understand the anatomy and any anatomical difference rather than just a unilateral limb field of view. The radiologist will then comment on the anatomy which is what the imaging does and tells us about the size the extent of the injury and the location of the injury. And that gives you an anatomical diagnosis. I think then we would want to know, are there any contributing components that may influence the pathophysiology? So is there a high hamstring tendinopathy? Is there any wear and tear or stress of the sacral tubus ligament? Is there any concomitant hip pathology or knee pathology that may well influence the ability for those two joint structures to take load and therefore the relative stress and strain on the hamstring and those things need to be brought into the context of the injury process because that pathophysiology will limit your progressions and or influence your exercise selection and then finally the final sort of pillar that I would use would be around a functional diagnosis so did this occur and that's where the mechanism for us comes in did this occur proximal biceps morris empty junction in terminal swing phase or did you get a proximal biceps morris MT junction on stance phase, which is an, an atypical injury? Are there any other functional components? Are we lacking muscle mass capacity around the pelvis, knee, ankle, foot, etc., which we can go into a little bit more when it comes back to sports-specific elements? So to summarise, it would be an anatomical diagnosis, which is influenced by imaging and classification, the pathophysiology of any concomitant pathology and or coexisting pathology, and then the functional criteria that goes along with it. And by that, you've then got a complete picture of what you're dealing with. Just to kind of tease out some tips on um, radiology, because you mentioned radiology then. Um, I've heard you a few times say how important it is to have a good relationship with your 
radiologist. And I, and I guess in the context of any injury, if you and the radiologist get on and you've worked with each other well before, you know probably how they're going to uh, report the image or the style in which they are. And they're going to know as a clinician or PT what you're looking for um, in that report. If somebody hasn't got that established relationship and rapport with a, a radiologist currently, is there anything that a physio, for example, should be um, trying to communicate to the radiologist in the first instance for the kind of information they want uh, when specifically dealing with a hamstring injury and, and an image for it? Um, yeah, great question. I, th- I think it's tricky when you're trying to communicate via the written word. I think there's absolutely no substitute in these scenarios for open dialogue. Um, and so one of the things we always used to do within professional sport and team sport was have the image and then schedule a, a conversation with the radiologist and or attending physicians immediately afterwards so that we were collating information together at the same time. Because I think the good radiologists that we've worked with, and there are a number of good ones here in the UK, not just in London, but across the UK that we work with within the Olympic setting as well, that open conversation of, okay, you see this stress in this tissue, but this is the clinical presentation. How does that fit with what you see? That's where the context comes in because the radiology is a comment on the anatomy and through the anatomy and the tissue stress a comment on the pathology um but that's always going to be put into context of the clinical signs that you've picked up on your physical examination and so for one person to interpret the clinical signs of the radiology or for the radiologist to interpret what they see without clinical context um even no matter how good they are and there's amazing people there it's always just a small piece of the pie and the best outcomes we've ever had have always been where we've had open dialogue between physicians, therapy team, SNC coaches and the radiologist on the diagnosis and then include the athlete and the coach within the process going on from there. So it's the clarity of exactly what you're dealing with, which I think only comes from the conversation. So I wouldn't necessarily worry about what information you need to put down. I would think you just need to ask a question about can you describe what's going on? And then that needs to be followed up with an open discussion about what's happening um, on the imaging with what's the clinical physical examination signs that you see. Yeah, that's some very wise advice there. I think a lot of people will um, already appreciate that one um, and the notion behind that. Um, to pivot to some of the anatomical considerations that you discussed last week, you mentioned that the short head and long head of biceps have different innovations. So they also have di- uh, different neuromuscular coordination pathways as well, as, which is something you said. Um, I think some of, the guests, some of the listeners might be wondering, how do we focus on targeting the two neuromuscular pathways in this instance? Um, or what would be some loading strategies that would achieve that, if you can describe them? Yeah, no, great, great question. Um, and then, <clears throat> there's a level of complexity within that answer. So I think we've got to go back a little bit and we've got to say, right, so biceps morris, even though it's the lateral muscle, it attaches on the superior medial aspect or it originates on the superior medial aspect of the ischial tuberosity as it blends with the conjoined tendon of semitendinosus. So it passes lateral to medial. So it's got a longer, wider excursion and or arc 
as it goes into its or comes from its origin. And also that origin has a very small aponeurosis. So its ability to dissipate stress and or um, transfer energy potentially is reduced. And that was Evangelist's 2015's paper that's looked at the pure anatomy of that origin. At the same time, biceps is probably slightly more fast twitch, but at the very least is a 50-50 fast twitch, slow twitch muscle. And it's innervated by the sciatic nerve. The other thing that's really important to take into consideration with biceps when you dice out is the proximal myofibrils, their pinnated angle, so the angle of the myofibril to the tendon, which influences its capacity to produce force, is different, and the pinnation angle um, transitions as you move down the muscle. So if you measure the pinnation angle at the empty junction, you get a different angle than if you measure it mid-belly, than if you measure it distally. So therefore, to measure biceps pinnated angle mid-belly, you'll get one answer and one direction to go down. If the injury is occurring at the proximal MT junction, then you might need to think about that injury process and the, the pinnated angle and fascicle orientation a little bit more differently than you do when it's at mid-belly. So it's understanding the architecture of the muscle and where the injury is and the context of that injury in order to then design your loading strategies moving on. So as we said, long head of biceps is innervated by sciatic. When we get to short head, a much broader aponeurotic origin um, coming down into the tendon, and you've got this T-tubule junction between short head and long head, which certainly from the surgical research we've had with Professor Haddad over here at UCL and ISCH, the Institute of Sport and Exercise Health, we see that if that in, if that gets injured at that MT junction interface between short head and long head, that has significantly longer rehab timeframes and potentially poor outcomes without surgical repair. But that evidence is still ongoing. Now, the classic question I always remember getting asked in a, in a postgraduate anatomy school is which muscle above the knee is innervated by the common perineal nerve? And it's the short head biceps femoris. So the sciatic nerve splits, obviously, transverse across the knee. And then you've got, as it wraps around the head of the fibula, it transfers into the, the common perineal nerve or branch of it goes into the common perineal nerve. But a branch off the head of the fibula comes back up the knee and crosses the knee joint to innervate the short head of biceps, which then tells you that any influence of the long head on the head of the fibula any influence of the ankle joint, the syndesmosis, the tibial fibrial joint, so as in the inferior tib fib joint, will influence the superior tib fib joint, which will then influence potential neural um, communication to the short head of biceps. And then you bring on top of that, if that wasn't complicated enough, the fact that short head is more of a dominant slow twitch muscle fiber. So it's going to have more of a postural orientated control or sustained isometric force and tensioning effect on the long head to increase the relative stiffness, whether that's passive viscoelastic stiffness or um, indirectly influencing the neuromuscular stiffness by pre-tensioning the long head. And it may well need to be loaded more in a, a higher volume and sustained loading manner than you would think about biceps, which is much more of a, a peak force and or higher velocity orientated muscle. So 
you then get this dichotomy between this complexity of anatomy just within one muscle between its origin, its insert and long head to short head, the sciatic to common perineal nerve, the difference in pinnated angles in the long head where the um, versus the short head where the short head's pinnated angle is much higher and therefore much more capable of producing more force. And then the fibre type and the influence of loading around that. So I think the, the question around loading has to be around what adaptation do you want to change within that muscle? And is it at the proximal empty junction? Is it at short head interface with long head or is it in the short head itself? Am I changing the non-contractile tissue or am I trying to look at the neural pathway? Every single one of those questions needs a different loading strategy appropriate to it but you've got to understand the question in the first place around the adaptation you want to have and then pick the appropriate loading or exercise to get the adaptation as opposed to i'm going to apply this loading strategy to my hamstrings hopefully that answers it yeah so it's not as simple as just picking an exercise it's you're picking your adapt- adaptation so even how you dose the exercise in terms of tempo or contractile type can uh, can change that adaptation as to what you're trying to influence. Totally. Yeah. Um, staying on anatomy, anyone that's heard you present uh, will know your focus and emphasis on adductor magnus as a functional hamstring. Could you shed some light on this for any listeners that are now scratching their head over this uh, anat- anatomy revelation or, or new way of looking at the magnus at least? Yeah, certainly. So, I mean, it's 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 very complex when you really break it down, but I'll try and do it. Um, concisely so the two really key papers is one by well there's a couple by Takazawa um, 2014 off the top of my head and then by OB OBY in 2016 that look at the real anatomy if we go to the OB first the OB paper will show the intimate connection and origin of adductor magnus on the ischial tuberosity um, being circa eight and a half millimetres, so less than a centimetre away from the origin of semimembranosis on the medial aspect, um, uh, sorry, of semimembranosis on the ischial tuberosity, and having a very close proximity towards the conjoint tendon of biceps femoris and semitendinosis as well. So there is a direct um, proximity of the muscle, um, and therefore, Due to its attachment at the ischial tuberosity, you would imagine, and we'll come to this in a second on function, that it will have a role within hip extension. But there's also further evidence that suggests that there is a, a fascial or soft tissue communication between semimembranosis and adductor magnus within that OB paper. And that potentially has been hypothesized as being a reason why semimembranosis gets injured less. Um, and the reason why it gets injured less is because there's a way of dissipating energy and force between membranosis, which is the strongest of the three hamstrings, um, by nearly 30% more than biceps and 60-70% more than semitendinosis, to adductor magnus, which is equally a very large cross-sectional area muscle with a great potential to produce force. And so if you go back to um, just on the force element and you go back to sort of all of uh, Richard Lieber's work on muscle architecture, where he shows that soleus is the strongest muscle in the body, but closely followed by vastus lateralis, glute max, glute med, and adductor magnus as being the next four strongest muscles in the body. So the, the capacity for that muscle to take load and dissipate the load from semimembranosis through its anatomy 
and its architecture is pretty important. When we moved to the Takazawa paper, they actually split Dr. Magnus into four different key elements. And not only do they show the proximal attachment and the initial tuberosity, but they also show an indirect attachment down into the posterior medial aspect of the femoral condyle and therefore will have an influence upon potential influence upon knee flexion. So if it has an influence on hip extension and knee flexion, well, that's the same mechanism by which the biarticular hamstrings work. So it's possible that adductor magnus has a very similar role as, um, as the hamstrings do in terms of hip extension and knee flexion. But the four elements of it are then the proximal two, so adductor magnus one and two, will influence hip, or we almost think of adductor magnus one more like a rotator cuff of the hip and stabilising the head of the femur within the acetabulum, adductor magnus two being much more influential around adduction at the hip joint, whereas um, magnus three and four are influencing hip extension and possibly knee flexion a little bit more. Now, adductor magnus one and two are innervated by the obturator nerve, whereas adductor magnus three and four are innervated by the sciatic nerve. And so we can start to see how it has an influence and has a direct com anatomical communication with the hamstrings. I think for final point is we then look at it from a functional point of view. And what we see from a number of different pieces of work is um, the size of Magnus, when you look at it in cross-sectional area on MRI, takes up the majority of the upper thigh. And therefore, that muscle mass has got to be influential within passive tensile load or elastic energy transfer within the proximal posterior thigh, which is what you'll see around proximal hamstring injuries, where the most common proximal hamstring, well, the most common hamstring injury is a proximal biceps femoris strain. And the bigger Magnus is, the more it offloads the relative tension within that posterior compartment. Then we look at the functionality of it, and there are two things really here. Is one, the work done by um, Vygotsky, I think I said that correctly. Uh, yeah, Vygotsky in 2016, 2018, where he looked at it as being the most important hip extension producing muscle in deep knee flexion. So when you go into um, deep hip flexion, which will, will occur in a squatting maneuver when you're in deep knee flexion as well, then adductor magnus becomes the primary extensor mechanism. So if I'm looking at terminal swing phase in running, magnus will initiate that hip extension moment arm um, as I get into that, uh, that terminal swing phase in running to offload the relative tension on my proximal hamstrings because I'm at I'm in outer range for my glutes, my glutes can't do that so uh, effectively. So Magnus becomes the key there. And that work is also backed up by Elizabeth Chuminoff's work in 2007, where she showed that relative tension in adductor Magnus on the ipsilateral side to biceps femoris reduced the stretch rate or strain rate, i.e. the elongation of the tissue under load of biceps femoris, in particular in terminal swing phase. And we know that the stretch rate or the elongation beyond four to eight percent, which is the normal elongation capability of a tissue, once you get above eight percent, and the data that's out there is, you know, up to up to twelve percent will definitely cause an injury. Then you've got an increase in tensile load that increases the risk of injury. So, 
Magnus potentially offloads that tensile energy um, on proximal biceps femoris. So to summarise, you've got a direct anatomical communication, you've got potential influence on hip extension, knee flexion, you've got a cross-sectional area that redistributes passive tension in the posterior thigh, you've got a neurological communication with the sciatic nerve that influences its capability to produce force like the rest of the hamstrings, and then we've got functional to around hip extension and offloading the relative strain rate in biceps femoris. So I think all of that across a number of different papers, when you amalgamate that information together, is overwhelmingly positive that biceps femoris, I'm not that Dr. Magnus can influence the injury mechanisms within biceps femoris. Yeah, and forgive me, this might be a bad or a horrible question. Um, you mentioned MRI and, and how you can use that to look at proportional volume or muscle mass. Um, not everybody will have access to that or have uh, frequent access to that at the very least, but may want some performance indicator of what the Magnus is doing in relation to the hamstrings. Um, knowing that we have a bit of a, uh, maybe a motor abundance situation at the hip in terms of um, overlapping roles of muscles, how cleanly can we profile the adductor magnus um, to see its kind of uh, force capacities? Um, yeah, I think the simple answer is you can't. I think, I think you know, we've got to go back to asking ourselves a question here. And I think um, sometimes in the attempt to provide clinical answers and to um, smooth things and make things efficient clinically, we maybe sometimes amalgamate questions together um, in terms of the scientific answer we're trying to look at. So I think there's an answer around cross-sectional area and therefore the volume of muscle which will influence the passive viscoelastic property or the passive stiffness and influence the non-contractile tissue, both tendon and fascial energy transfer across the, the posterior thigh. I think there's a question around maximum force output which is related to fascicle strength and neuromuscular motor unit recruitment and motor unit recruitment efficiency. I think there's then um, a question around timing, motor efficiency or movement patterning within, mo within movement sequences. I think there's then a question around speed of coordination and influence at high velocity movements, which will influence both the passive and the active components of that neuromuscular. So if you were to break that down, I think you can start to answer a question a little bit maybe about cross-sectional area, but we've got to remember that MRI really at present, um, as is ultrasound, is a two-dimensional image predominantly, and we're trying to map a three-dimensional muscle that has four different components with multiple fiber angles, and pinnated angles. So the complexity of mapping that muscle volume is very difficult. There are new, particularly at UCL or within the UCL network. So at the Indian, at the National Center for Neurosurgery and Neurological Rehab, or we just call it the National Queen Square. Um, they've got the ability, the physicists there have got the ability to use MRI to look at three-dimensional radiological cross-sectional area as opposed to physiological cross-sectional area of a muscle. I think that needs to be mapped with the muscle architecture work that's been done by Richard Lieber's team and, you know, Ward and Arnold and all the mathematical modeling stuff that's been done, whether it be Androsini in San Francisco or Marcus Pandy's group down in Melbourne in Australia. 
and compile that together so we know what we're dealing with. When you look across all those papers, there is variance within the information we get on cross-sectional area. So to move that forward, we do need like some kind of three-dimensional process. I think when we're looking at force, we need to answer a very simple question. Can we produce optimal force? Optimal force is going to be produced about a vector as opposed to about an isolated muscle. So I think you want to look at hip extension torque or hip extension force vector as a combination of glutes to adductors to hamstrings. And what and is that extension torque good enough? Yes or no? Have we assessed it in the right range where most muscles produce optimal force in mid-range? If we go back to our basic sort of scientific principles of testing muscles. So if we're not testing muscles in mid-range, we've got a level of stress that's going through the muscle and stress is usually in newtons per meter squared or force output. But we're not getting, uh, have we got maximal stress or maximal force? And there are lots of different testing devices that test strength in muscles, but they're not testing the muscle in mid-range. And therefore, we're getting a comment of force, but we don't know whether what that force is related to in terms of optimal force. And so I think if we're looking at Magnus in particular, um, you want to look at it in terms of both an extension and an adduction torque. And then you get an idea of its plane of movement force distribution. And ideally, you need to do that in a mid-range to understand it. Um, I'll stop waffling there because I've answered that question in a rather long-winded manner. No, that was perfect. That's, that's what podcasts are for anyway. Um, nobody's usually able to uh, discuss hamstrings without Nordics being uh, mentioned quite a lot. Um, and you definitely nudge this conversation or or very kind of celebrated nuance forwards with some interesting clarity on force demands. You point out that the strength measures we use inclusive of Nordics uh, do not correlate to the loads or velocities we witness during sprinting and hamstring. I hope that's a a fair quote, but correct me if I'm wrong. Um, Could you elaborate on this, then knowing that this might potentially rock the boat for some people um, with Nordics, as to explain kind of when or when you would not use a Nordic and and just put them in perspective, pragmatically? Um. Yeah, so again, I think at the risk of repeating myself, I think it comes back to the same thing. It's the context of the question you're asking. Um, So any information, any data has value, provided it's put in context. If the data is taken out of context or used um, in an isolated manner, then it can lead you down a certain path that may or may not be beneficial, depending on how you apply that information. So, um, And I think that goes across the board, whether that's Nordics, whether that's force plate data, whether that's, you know, running kinematics etc um and the accuracy of it i think you've also then got to know what the gold standard is um in terms of where you're trying to do that and not just the gold standard within the device or the measure that you're using but within what the ceiling is of optimal because i think when we're dealing with the general population the ceiling needs to be different when we're dealing with an elite athlete because i will turn around in track and field and say you know, a 10 500 meter sprinter is different than a 10 2, which is different than a 10 flat, which is different than a sub 10. And that's all within a second of each other, but they're different beasts that you're dealing with. And so your ceiling or the way in which you apply information to them needs to shift and move up and down that dial or that abacus as you apply that information. So that's the, the philosophical part to it. I think for the specifics, let's go back to just mechanics first and foremost 
you know realistically that when you look at running and running data, the primary component of producing speed or running or transitioning from a standing start to moving quickly is your ability to produce vertical force. And vertical force then produces stride length. And those two components, vertical force and stride length, are the key determinants to getting up to seven meters a second. Um, and seven meters a second is roughly 24 kilometers an hour or about 16 miles an hour if you were to, to convert all the data. But what we also know is that predominantly comes from your, your calves. And so if I can't produce it for my quads and my calves as an extension mechanism, i.e. vertical force mechanism, extension at the knee and plantar flexion at the foot, which is extension, then I've got to produce it from somewhere else, which will come from the hip and the hamstrings. And the data that we see, particularly from Dawn's work and from Marcus Pandy's group, is that the hip is not really contributing massively to running mechanics until you get over meters a second. Once you get over seven meters a second, then it comes down to hip torque that produces speed. And we know that most hamstring injuries, and if you look at the data in Europe, 66 to 86 percent of all hamstring injuries occur at speed and high speed running would be regarded above seven meters a second sort of speed. So as we get up to nine meters a second or greater, and certainly some of the footballers we work with can get over, get up to 10 meters a second and the track after over 11 meters a second sort of speed, then now your hip takes over. And now this is about extension torque and frequency. So it's the flexion extension ratio of so extension on the ipsilateral limb, flexion on the contralateral limb. So the real relationship between hamstrings and hip flexors that makes the difference. Now, when we look at that hard data of hip extension torque from Dawn's work, they would argue that the hamstrings are producing nine times body weight at nine meters a second. And the hip flexors on the contralateral limb are producing nine times body weight at nine meters a second. So, you know, you take that at an 80 kilo male and that's you know 7200 newtons or 720 kilograms worth of force when we look at anthony sachi's work then he'll talk about 5000 newtons worth of force going through the lateral hamstring and 5000 newtons worth of force going through the medial hamstring so 10000 newtons worth of force at high speed running and where so the equivalent of 1000 kilograms worth of force now, when we convert that towards some of the strength measures, some of the data that's out there, we're talking about 250 newtons or 400 newtons on strength data as being, you know, reasonable. And certainly the evidence that's been done on hamstrings and Nordics says that over 337 newtons is strong enough to reduce risk of hamstring injuries. Well, I think that is the case, depending on what speed you run at. And if you're somebody that is regularly getting over seven, nine meters a second, and you're doing a high volume of that within what you're doing, then 337 newtons may not be enough. Once you start to get higher than that and faster than that, then you need more force to potentially dissipate. However, the paradox is um, that the more force you can produce, potentially the faster you run, the faster you run, potentially the more exposure to hamstring injury risk you have and therefore you need to be conditioned to running fast. And one of the key elements here is that conditioning to running fast, the relative torque or speed angular velocity of movement 
if we're talking nine meters a second, we know the knee flexion torque is about 700 to 750 degrees a second versus if we're looking at IKD, so isokinetic dynamometry, most of the data is done at 60 degrees a second. So one tenth um, or one, you know, one ninth and nine percent or eight percent of the relative torque ratio. If we look at Nordics and if someone's doing a Nordic over six seconds lower as an eccentric, then they're probably moving at about 15 to 30 degrees a second in terms of their movement. So there's not equatable element to it. But then we've got to turn around and say, well, is Nordic testing strength? Is it testing non-contractile tissue load? What's it really testing coming back to relative to running? So as a reproducible data set, it has value as something that is directly applicable towards running speed and running values. Then maybe we need to question whether it gives us all the answers we need, as opposed to can this can this tissue or this individual produce enough force? And then how do we make that force and that tissue stress and strain tolerable towards what they need to do within their sport, their positional demands and or their anthropometry or their phenotype within the individual itself? Yeah, so it can still tease out some uh, objective information that feeds into the question, but it's it's not a one-stop shop for looking at hamstring performance. It's part of a battery, ultimately. Totally. Yeah. How how do you go about, or how people will definitely uh, message me about this, how do you go about um, max, maximally strength testing the hamstring? Because that will be a, an obvious question in people's minds now. Um, yeah, great. Again, good question. So I think you, you've got to be able to break things down a little bit. So we, we answer simple questions first uh, in terms of what we're trying to do. So the first simple question is, can they use maximal or near maximal vertical forces? So we'd always look at that in an isometric rig um, within a force plate and look at either unilateral squat, um, un bilateral squat or peak plantar flexion force within an isometric force plate to really just understand the main knee and ankle torque in the first place. The main reason for that is if we can't produce the vertical force needed, then it really doesn't matter how strong the hamstring is because we're going to have to compensate there. And certainly when you analyse some team sports, you see that they don't, either the nature of the boot, the pitch, or just their running mechanics is they don't produce enough vertical force when they run. Their stride length's not big enough and they're using cadence early or frequency early within a running pattern to try and develop speed, which means the muscle's having to work harder within a shorter time frame which potentially increases the, the relative load to that tissue. So first question is that, of which, yes, the inverse dynamics, when you analyse it, is it becomes a knee and ankle torque, but you've still got to be, be able to transfer energy through the hip and the trunk as well. So there's an indirect component towards vertical force there. Then, then it's a force vector profile for us. So we use the fixed dynamometer, um, and the main like, bit of equipment we use is by Kangatech, um, so we get about 38 different measures around the human body, but against a fixed resistance that isn't relied upon handheld dynamometry where you need to strap the individual down or there's a certain limitation between application of force of the tester and or strength or body weight of the tester that makes a difference um, in terms of your ability to resist the individual 
and either have a make or break test, as you would describe it within dynamometry. So we look at that in terms of a fixed dynamometer. And then we also look at that in terms of um, an isokinetic dynamometry, both uh, from an isometric, excuse me, from an isometric point of view, or at the very least, the slow speeds that we need, excuse me again, um, within the hamstring complex on IKD. So we get a battery of different tests that answer a question around force. Then the second element we need to answer is a question around metabolism. So the ability to repeatedly produce submaximal force. And then, then you need something around neuromuscular coordination as well, if you want to answer the question comprehensively. But from a force point of view, it would be force plate, vertical force, then torques around the hip off a fixed dynamometer, and then looking at IKD as well, both knee flexion and hip extension moment arms um, around the um, hamstring complex itself. Cool. I think that will uh, more than answer the question for people. Um, staying on strength, you, uh, you've discussed the relative force contributions and ratios that we should look for in and around the hip. Um, if it's possible, would you be able to go through them? Um, and then knowing people will not only want the facts, but some practical methods to potentially try, could you then describe how you can maybe test those ratios? I know that's probably an enormous question. You know, so, um, Within the presentation, we deliberately didn't go into strength diagnostics too much because I think that's a whole nother presentation in itself. Um, and, you know, and I'd happily do that with one of our S&C coaches. And that's probably what we're going to do with HDN in the upcoming months because there's a big demand for that. Um, but to answer the question, so what, what we've done is a combination of different things. We have uh, to look at hips We've taken the principle predominantly from Professor Newman, who's a professor of kinesiology up at Marquette University in the US. And we've looked at his relative torque ratios in newtons per meter um, squared um, uh, within yeah, the torque ratios that he's looked at, which he mainly looked at, I think, on IKD off the top of my head. But it's the principle rather than the numerical value that you want to look at and so it's the relative principle of extension is the largest force producer followed by flexion followed by adduction followed by abduction then internal rotation then external rotation which is fascinating because when you look at most rehab programs around hips regardless of hamstrings we focus on abduction and external rotation which is two of the three weakest movements at the hip that we try and get back and what we should see is relative ratios because hip extension is produced by the extensors, by the abductors and by the adductors. And the adductor muscle groups are extensors, their adductors and their hip flexors. And so hip flexion is also produced by the hip flexors, by the quadriceps, by the adductors um, as well in terms of the torque that's produced. So when we're looking at torque, we're looking at relative force ratios across a joint structure as opposed to individual muscle contributions. And then what we've got to do is look at those relative ratios in different positional demands. So we know, or you would know, that when you run or you run fast, ideally you might hit about 100 degrees hip flexion and 30 degrees hip extension. You may even go relatively a little bit deep into hip flexion, but that's going to give you a relative sagittal plane arc of 130 degrees 
well, I need to know, can they produce hip extension force in deep hip flexion? Can they produce it at mid-range? Can they produce it in inner range, like you would see on a normal bell-shaped curve? So our question we would ask is, can we get a normal bell-shaped curve distribution of extension? If we can, great. Does that fit with an abduction normal bell-shaped curve? Does that fit with an adduction normal bell-shaped curve? Well, then we know indirectly that the adductors, the abductors, and the extensors are all working well together. If any one of them is off, then maybe that gives us a direction of a force vector that we want to train. And so we would turn around and say, well, within strength and conditioning, we don't re- we don't train muscles, we train movements, and movements therefore train force vectors. And it's the force vector about a joint that moves you, not the muscle itself. And so by retraining all that, then we are able to retrain um, force capacity within a tissue. But we answered the question in terms of vectors around a joint. And the, the hip joint's beautiful because it's a ball and socket joint. So you can go in multiple directions, but we look at simple planes of movement first and foremost. And what you do is you build almost like a spider's wheel around flexor extension torques up to adduction ratios. Now, those ratios need to vary depending on the height and weight of the individual, depending, we would argue, on their femoral length and therefore the primary lever arm at the hip, but also depending on the sport and their demands. So if you take football, a centre-back that's tall, that doesn't do very much sprinting, may need as good a capacity at his hip, particularly between ab and adduction and or extension, than a fullback who's pinging it up and down the wing and who's pinging in lots of crosses with a big whip on the ball and a lot of shape on the ball where the speed has got to come from the adduction from the adductor group producing adduction and extension but also the nature of putting some shape on the ball comes from the way in which you hit across the ball and therefore the adduction component so their relative demand on their adductors or the adduction movement needs to be greater and so proportionally, we will shift that curve depending on the individual. So to backtrack through all of that, I think what you've got to do, which is um, potentially what I'm talking to uh, to universities about for a PhD, is how do we phenotype the individual, understand their demands, the way they're built from a morphological point of view and from a muscle distribution point of view, and then understand the demands of what they're trying to do. So it becomes down to what I'd describe as biological economics is, has the body got the supply to deal with the demands that the body wants to do? Now, whether that's a weekend warrior, someone who I would describe as an occupational athlete, very physical in what they do, or someone who's an elite level athlete, you've got to match supply with demand. And so that's what we try and do with our talk ratios is look at the relative ratios based on principle, but then modify it depending on the individual and their sport. And I hope that answers that first part. Yeah. And just to clarify, this is more for me actually, but obviously the relative values between the the different vectors will change. If you were to kind of order them in terms of, you know, each movement is the ordering still the same regardless of the kind of the fluctuations. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, So not not only have we got that from, so in, in theory, if you want to take it as a numerical value, um, if extension is 50 kilograms or 500 newtons, flexion should be roughly 10% off that, so 450 or there or thereabouts. Adduction should be 10 to 20% down from flexion, so somewhere between 35 and 40. Generally, we look at about 35 
kilograms if the flexion extension is 50 and 45. Um, and abduction should be 40% of extension. So 30, sorry, should be 6% of extension. So 30 would be roughly, 30, 32 would be roughly about right in terms of a force production. So 60% of, of extension when you're looking at the relative glute contribution towards it, um, albeit there'll be other th- um, force vectors that we're coming into abduction. So 50, 45, 35, 30 is kind of like your rough ballpark figures for your average male, etc. When you get down to internal or external rotation, we're talking about 10 or 15 kilograms worth of force. You're now, you know, internal and external rotation force is 30% of what the extension um, abduction um, or extension flexion forces and half that of what the abduction forces. So I think you can spend a lot of time going after internal or external rotation as a force vector and therefore strengthening it as opposed to a motor control coordination pathway, which is different. Um, that won't, will take you a long time to develop it. However, if you understand Codman's paradox, which is basically the ball and socket joint, if I retrain sagittal plane and coronal plane, I retrain rotation. Then by improving sagittal plane and, co- and coronal plane movement in a biomechanical law, you will naturally get an overlay into internal and external rotation as they are a subset of coronal plane movement. In biomechanics, you cannot retrain rotation without retraining coronal plane movement. So the two movements are coupled together. Um, so that's roughly work at the same principles, but we will modify it depending on the individual at hand. Yeah. And we're scratching the surface of what you covered last week. And of course, that would have been scratching the surface of your you know, total knowledge on this topic. Um, through HDPN, you know, what, what I think you mentioned at the beginning, what you've got coming up on hamstrings, but what else have you guys got coming out in the sort of wider sphere of, uh, of courses? Well, that's huge. Um, so, you know, HTPN's new. It's a relatively, is a little bit of a plug, a new, relatively new setup that's designed to influence and maybe disrupt a little bit around education and make it very, very clinically applicable and interpret all the information, all the um, everything that's out there in social media, in the literature. Like I said, 650 articles on hamstrings. I've got 750 on hips and I've got over 500 on groins. So hip, groin and hamstring is kind of my baby really in lots of different ways. So we can disseminate that information in different ways. There are, we've got in excess of 20 um, just from the UK alone and we've got more coming on board from Europe all the time. Um, we'll have the ability to differentiate courses, but the main principle is, is that we deliver um online education through webinars and bite-sized bits of information which is what we delivered last week we deliver a mentoring package where we can support people on their journey and help them to grow or stimulate them in different ways um be you know um a safe place for them to bounce ideas off depending what environment they are and we've got a whole mentoring team that are designed around doing it who've achieved at the highest level with this olympic games or professional sport um, and then we've got an attend model where you can go to courses because I think all learning, even in this COVID era, still needs to incorporate your three principles of learning, which is auditory, visual and kinesthetic. And while we can learn a lot by podcasts and webinars with auditory and visual, what we won't get is the kinesthetic feel 
And what you also don't get is the coffee break conversations, a la your kind of Google way of thinking. It's those little conversations behind the scenes on attend courses and or degree programs, master's programs that just highlight information and put it into context a little bit more. So there's an attend model to all of that. And then everybody who's a member of the HDPN network has their own bespoke library and resource basis. So whatever they attend or whatever we give away for free as bonuses for our members gets um, placed into your library, which becomes your own personal resource for review and reflection and consolidation of information. So the webinar that we did last week was a two-hour webinar on hamstring injuries, mainly looking at classification and risk stratification. Um, that's then been edited and is placed into the library. There was a Q&A section afterwards with 19 questions, which I went back through and answered in detail on a six-page document, and then that's been put in. Off the back of the Q&A, there were seven articles that came to fruition that people would value, would benefit from reading relevant to the Q&A, which was then placed in the folder. And then a couple of extra videos around information stimulation around what we were trying to do around the hamstring topic. So there's a no, really what we've tried to do is give you multiple different entry points that you can come onto the platform with HDPN that you can learn at your own pace, in your own way, with your own style, and you can pick and choose your own level of learning rather than um, enter into a formal education program, which has huge value and huge benefit. You know, I, I mean, I've got three degrees already and potentially looking at a PhD, but so I'm the last person to say not to do it. Um, but there's different ways of learning for different people. And so this just gives people the ability to have a more bespoke for their learning style, more bespoke process for their learning style. It's an unbelievably thorough um, educational pathway and, and we'll link it in the show notes as well and on the, on, on the website so people can click through into the links to, to HDPN. Um, where can people find you and where's the best pe- pe- where's the best place for people to follow your activity personally? Um. Yeah, good. Uh, so um, mainly mainly through HDPN, we're going to be posting a lot up through there. I'm not particularly prolific on social media um, because that's just not me really. Every now and again, I'll put some stuff up there, but I, I'd rather just um, impart knowledge and impart information within context and let people make their own minds up rather than give opinion-based work or or particular, you know, snippets of information, which I think, while social media can be incredibly beneficial, sometimes A, it can be taken out of context, or B, um, you're, you're only getting a snippet of the information, and, and it's really the the context behind that that really adds the value to it, and that's, that's, what, mean, that's what means more to me. So either through HDPN, which is hd-pn.com, or through our clinic, which is chhp.com, um, and that's where most of the information to find me and, and all the courses that we're going to deliver, our diary of events, our information will, will be on one of those two platforms. Fantastic. Well, James, thanks, mate. It's, it's always good to chat to you anyway, but it's it's an absolute privilege to get you on the show and um, and definitely just to, to re-emphasize to the listeners, I think, play this back another one or two times. Obviously, that's a shameless podcast plug, but definitely for your own learning, you know, from experience speaking to James, like it just helps to to go over what he says and, uh, and kind of solidify what you're hearing. But yeah, James, thanks, thanks for coming on, mate. No, Andy, an absolute pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much for having me. Cheers, mate.
I'd like to say a huge thanks to James for coming on the show and fielding my cherry-picked questions off the back of his presentation a week ago. Definitely have a look at HDPN. The course and presenter lineup that they've put together is top-notch. I hope you enjoyed this incredibly detailed episode and high-level episode on hamstring injuries. As usual, the episode will have show notes attached, which you can find at our website, informperformance.com. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at informperformance or on Twitter at informpod. You've been listening to Inform Performance with me, Andy McDonald. Catch us next week for more performance and sports medicine insights.